I'm Greg Berlet, and I'm here with my buddy Anto. Today, we are talking about cryptography, codes, how to make them, how to break them. And who used them. And who used them, and kind of the history of them, and, uh, you know, a, a whole bunch of different ciphers that have been used in history, uh, what they're good at, and what they're not good at. And what trouble you can get in if you use them irresponsibly. Yeah, well, what do you mean? Like the FBI showing at your door, or what? Uh, no, more like uh, thinking things are safe that you send or encrypt, and them turning out to be read by everyone because your cipher is broken. Yeah, there, there's actually been a lot of talk about this lately, um, especially with everyone being um, socially isolating with COVID, uh, stuff like that. Hey, that's why we haven't recorded in the last little bit. Yeah, um, this has been it's been a little crazy. Antos had to go out and buy a a proper podcast mic so we can do this remotely for the time being. Um, but anyways, um, now that people are using a lot of um, the Google Hangouts, Zoom, Skype, all of that kind of stuff to do meetings and all of that, um, there's been a lot of questions about um, basically encryption because a lot of important company decisions are being made. Tech mm-hmm. people are you know, distributing their IP over uh, these remote communication software. And the question is, uh, who can who can snoop on that? Is it susceptible to a man-in-the-middle attack? Which is, I think that I'm talking to Anto, for example, and I'm actually talking to someone in between who is then passing uh, the content on to Anto. Um, so a lot of that. Um, so I was actually looking into Google Hangouts. So the middleman here is Google. So Google is um, sitting in between us, passing messages between me and Anto. Um, so it's not, um, the question is if you're divulging intellectual property, whether you think that Google, you know, will actually snoop in on you. Do they have a key? I'm just curious. Does who have a key? Google? Like for our Google hangout right now, does Google have a key that they could decrypt our message? It's, it's unencrypted on, it's unencrypted on Google's side. Okay. Uh, they, they will actually, um, probably use this audio automated in some point for speech recognition and stuff like that uh, it's part of it's part of using a free service we're not mm. paying for this right um so we are paying by giving them our data yeah our voice um, will eventually be used to create something that imitates donald trump oh no <laughs> oh no <laughs> not like this santo we're we've been included <laughs> so um let, let's hop into cryptography and and talk about it a bit so cryptography we have ciphertext and we have plain text so essentially if i want to um send anto a message i'm going to write out plain text meaning what the actual message is so in the english language because we're speaking english and sometimes (laughs) sometimes and then i can run it through a function, twiddle around the characters, and give it to Anto, and he would be in charge of decoding the ciphertext. So the the ciphertext will be like kind of the scrambled message. Um, and then Anto will take that, decode it on his side, and hopefully get back the plain text. Uh, yeah, hopefully you've shared the message. key with me so I'm able to do that. Yeah. Um, so the key uh, in cryptography is... The, the very important piece of information that allows the receiving end 
to uh, descramble the message. Um, without the key, um, it would be, it should be impossible for only someone with a key to read it. Um, of course, that doesn't always happen because a lot of these um, ciphers, especially some of the really old ones, are pretty easy to crack. Um, so for example, a really good example of this would be like Pig Latin. Um, Pig Latin is where you take the English word that you want to say, you take the first character of the word, add it to the end, and then add A. Um, so technically, that's ciphertext. It's not, it, it's not, it's pretty naive. It's not very good or very complex, but, uh, uh, you know, if it's, if it's kids on the playground, you know, a lot of them won't want to take the time to figure out what the heck that weird guy is saying. Yeah. Antoine? Ude uye ikspe ikpe atenle? Holy crap. I still remember how to speak big Latin. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't. I haven't said anything in Pig Latin for years. Let's try to like, keep it that like way. Like 20 years. Wait, you didn't like that? No. It's great. It, I don't want to use my brain when I'm talking. <laughs> so Anto would not have the key due to lack of brain cells. Lack of brain? Would... <laughs> I have the key. I'm just choosing not to implement the key. <laughs> I, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> so um, in cryptography... Language is a code. Language is a, a ciphertext. For example, um, I, I don't speak Spanish, so if there's someone who's conveying information in Spanish, uh, I don't have the key, which <laughs> the brain cells in this case, um, to actually decipher that and get the plain text for what people are talking about. So I have, I have no idea what they would be saying. So language yeah. is a code. So um, beyond Spanish... There are some pretty notable uh, uses of language that uh, weren't nef necessarily intended to be uh, methods of encryption, but but ended up being just because you know information was lost due to time and wars and you know what happens over thousands of years. Like for example, hieroglyphics or hieroglyphics or uh, cuneiform um, in ancient languages. Oh yeah, cuneiform. Yeah, I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, hieroglyphs, when they were first discovered, um, no one knew what they actually meant. Like they, they knew that they were symbols that represented certain things, and they kind of thought that um, each symbol was um, kind of an, an enactment of what the concept was that it was trying to convey. So, for example, um, someone looking up towards the sun would mean, you know, kind of someone looking up towards the sun. Like a pictogram. Yeah, a pictogram, exactly. Like you would see in, like, cave paintings and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then they, after some research, figured out that it was phonetic. And uh, hieroglyphs were, were encoding phonemes of speech. Um, and once they, you know, made that, that um, filled in that gap, they were able to decipher hieroglyphs and uh, actually figure out what they were saying, which is pretty cool. Um, then um, kind of Morse code is obviously a code because it has code in the name. Um, and that's taking each letter in the alphabet and giving it a dot or a dash. So you're essentially kind of turning it into binary. Um, 
whenever I think of Morse code, for some reason, I, I think of um, uh, Titanic, like the movie Titanic, when, um, when the stuff goes down. Why you don't think of what Titanic? Oh, I think of Morse like uh, World War Two movies and oh. spies. And, I, I think of um, and, and like SOS calls in the Navy. I guess so. That's more the Titanic related one. But like really, um, I don't think of the Titanic at all. I think of the the James Cameron movie when they just get hit by the iceberg, and the guy runs into the comms room, and it's just a guy with the dinky little um, press, he's tippy tapping. Yeah, he's And the guy goes, "Oh my God, we've been hit by an iceberg." And the guy that has to encode the message is like, hold up, hold up, I got, I got this. And then takes like five minutes to write out this stupid message because it's such a terrible way to encode uh, content. Well, I, like a question mark in Morse code is like five symbols. Like for a question mark. It's very long. Yeah. <laughs> Though it was better than anything they had at the time. That's true. Because um, they needed to find a way to encrypt it over... Uh, wires uh, or radio, right? Mm -hmm. um, so then they were encoding dots or dashes, which would be kind of like voltage in a wire, right? Mm -hmm. It's great for short messages. I wouldn't say it's completely unused. I, I think a lot of military agencies still teach it to uh, their trainees as a last resort, but it's definitely not used like in, in practice to exchange messages routinely. I, I, think, um, I think it was used um, by... A kidnapped U.S. soldier who was being recorded, and it was sent back to the U.S. And he blinked with his eyes in Morse code "help," and mm -hmm. then they knew that it was staged, um, and, and like things were not okay. So uh, yeah, I, I think I think you're right. Like I think they still do teach that, um, yeah, which is pretty cool. Um, so basically, World War Two um, and kind of the the age of, of digitization of things and, and computers was kind of a, a breaking point for cryptography. Before yeah. World War II, everything was kind of pen and paper ciphers. They're called classic ciphers. Um, stuff that, that you could do on a pen and paper. Um, you're not going to be dealing with, with bits and bytes and... Um, you know, manipulations yeah, on you could, you could classify it as like pre-machine and post-machine. Yeah, I like I think. that. Yeah. Um, so I guess, I guess one of the first, it's not even a cipher, but the first way, so the whole point of cryptography is I want to send a message to a particular person and only have them read that message. Um, so back in the day, a lot of people would just hide messages um, like embedded in bread, that kind of stuff. Uh, the um, Greeks, um, there was one, I can't remember what exactly the story was, but this, this Greek guy was in Persia and he put uh, a message under wax coating on some stone tablets. Oh yeah. Um, to get the message back to Greece. And then they scraped off the wax and found the message. Um, mm -hmm. so like, that's one example of, uh, there's a specific name for, for hiding messages versus encrypting messages, too, and I can't recall what it yeah, is right now. I can't recall it either. It's in it's in the, the code book um, by Simon Singh. Um, so we both have been... Well, I read the book probably about two years ago, and I passed it on to Anto. Um, very great book. 
that's good for intro level cryptography definitely definitely a worthwhile read yeah it explains on a very accessible level you don't go hard into math um but you understand what what's happening which is really cool mm-hmm. um so speaking of of uh greeks um there was a this is called the transposition cipher basically where you're taking the plain text so what the message you want to encode and then moving things around so that's the transposition part um so this was used way way back in the day to uh convey messages between generals so what they would do is they would take a strap of leather and they would wrap it around their command staff yeah a stick and it would have a certain diameter and every general would have this diameter of stick basically and um then you would write so you would wrap around um the stick then you would write across um the leather as it's wound over it um so every single um character would be on a new um wind of that strap and then when you unravel it from the stick you have this you know encoded message that's all scrambled and you need the proper diameter of stick um, on the other side, so you would wrap around the leather, and then you'd be able to read the, the actual plain text. Um, and that's a really, really cool idea. Uh, super old-school method of, of um, uh, encrypting a, a message, which is pretty cool. And also just like a super fast method, method of doing it, right? Totally. Um, however, it's kind of easy to, um, to break. I mean, if you have a stick, anyone with a stick... Um, it has to be the right stick. It has to be the right stick. It has to be a you know, proper diameter, right? But um, like you can get it even even if you're a little bit off, you can kind of figure out what's happening, right? Yeah. You'd be like, oh well, we're just starting to form. If I tighten it a little bit, um, so I, I would say it's very easy to um, to actually you know crack and figure out what what the plain text message is. Um, and then um, I guess uh, the Romans. The Caesar cipher, and this one is famous. Um, it's kind of like one of the first um, ciphers that you learn in any kind of cryptography course or anything like that. Everything's always Caesar cipher. Mm-hmm. Um, this one's a shift cipher. So basically, if you shift it over by two, um, each character is shifted by two. So A becomes C, right? Yeah. And yeah. B becomes D, that kind of thing. Um, and you just go through every single character in your plain text message and just shift it over. Yeah, it's kind of the basis for um, some future ciphers coming up here as well. And um, it's a, it's also called a symmetric cipher, meaning um, if you shift over everything, the person on the receiving end of the message has to do the reverse of that. Um, so it's exactly the same operation, just reversed um, to get back to the same stage kind of like um if you take a step forward and you want to get back to the place that you were you just take a step back um so you're just in exactly the same spot that you were before mm-hmm. um so that's that's the caesar cipher um it, it's a, it's pretty easy to encode things so it's fast um but pretty easy to break um mostly because there's only 26 ways that you can possibly encode something. You can shift over everything by one, by two, by three, all the way to 26. And by the time you get to 26, 
A becomes A, B becomes B, and so on, and you're just encoding your plain text again. So you actually have not, uh, you've, you haven't encrypted anything, so you'd just be sending your message over again. Or you're playing the long game. <laughs> the long con? <laughs> the long con. Make them think that you've encoded it when in fact you have not. <laughs> Hiding in plain sight, as we say. And then, and then, imagine if you're sending that to a, a Roman general, and they go, "You idiot! You didn't encrypt this at all." Nah, but I did. <laughs> it's a Caesar cipher, rotated twenty six. Um, you you want to talk about pigpen, Anto? Yeah, sure. So, um, another it's again a very simple cipher. Um, so pigpen is used by you know secret fraternities, like. Um, God, what are they called? The, the Freemasons. Um, and also, a lot of criminal organizations would use it because it's very easy to remember how to encipher things. So what you would do is uh, you would make a, a tic-tac-toe board, essentially, and put uh, the letters in it until you get to... I can't remember what the letter is. And then you make an X, and you put four more letters in there. And then you put another tic-tac-toe board and an X with the remaining letters but each of those has a dot in each of the, the spaces. And then you would take those symbols, so like, for example, A would be a backwards L, and you would basically, it's a straight substitution, and they would use those to quickly encode messages to each other, um, typically to keep their ideas and ramblings about their, uh, you know, discontentment with the current government, or in the case of criminals, where the next drop is going to be, or something like that. Um, and it's a quick way of keeping things secret enough. What what the heck happened with the Freemasons, Anto? Like they, they were they were kind of better than Masons, right? Like they just made fancy um, fancy uh, carvings into stone, right? And then it just no. kind of snowballed into this whole secret fraternity. I I think it was like um, a front, Greg, the oldest front in the book. You think it was a front? I thought it was just a like a the lodges for the Freemasons. I thought mm -hmm. that the lodges were a place where um, Masons who did specialty work, like not just people, you know, laying down brick, but people that did specialty work, like carvings into stone and that kind of stuff, where they could hang out and talk about their work. And then, um, and then it became like this whole club and they had secret handshakes and all that kind of stuff to differentiate themselves from normal masons, and then it just snowballed. The word free is very important, It because uh, there was, I think back in the day, you had to be a member of like the Masons Guild. And so if you're in the, the Freemasons, it's like being like a sole contractor, and you could do what you want, say what you want, take the jobs you want, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, uh, you know, folks that, you know, we're trying to uh, escape their current government, like, you know, say Ben Franklin kind of liked the idea of being able to do that. And so um, obviously it started long before him. But, uh, you know, that that sort of idea appealed to people. Um, and they wanted a place where they can go and do that. And so they just decided it would be the Freemasons, I guess. I don't know, we'd have to do some more research. No, I, I did a, a Google Map search. There's more than one lodge, Freemason Lodge. Of course there is. Yeah, it's crazy. It's still a thing, and you need to be um, you need to be invited. Uh, like two two Freemasons need to vouch for you. 
that's wild mm-hmm. it's a it's a whole thing there is uh i i walk past uh i believe there's one downtown and i've walked past it many times huh. do you know do you know a freemason i don't know any freemasons or maybe i do and they haven't divulged their their secret <laughs> identities true. to me that's true getting back to to ciphers um so all the ones that we've kind of talked about so far are monoalphabetic. Um, that just means that, um, for example, A will always map to D, or B will always map to X. Um, one letter is always mapped to one letter. Yeah, there's um, a one-to-one, um, very straightforward. Um, obviously, that, that means it's simple and easy to encipher things, but also easy to decipher things. So it yeah, has pros exactly. and cons. There's a lot of a lot of issues, um, particularly around letter frequency analysis. Um, so that is, for example, in English, we have letters that are used more frequently than other letters. For example, vowels, the letter E, the letter S, that kind of stuff. Um, they pop up more frequently. And if you look at large pieces of English text, so just open up a book, um, and then you actually throw all those letters into a computer and then just plot, you know, how many A's did I have? How many B's did I have? Um, when you have a long enough piece of text, it follows a very specific pattern um, in terms of percentages of A's and B's and C's and, and all that Specifically kind of stuff. with those, those high frequency letters like your E's, S's, and T's. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes really clear at least which, which letters those are. And then you can start to guess at the rest. Yeah. So basically, um, you look at your ciphertext, so the scrambled letters, and then you plot the frequencies of all of those things. And let's say um, X was off the charts in terms of frequency. Um, well, it's probably an E because that's you know a really high frequency uh, letter in, in the English language. Um, so it's becomes very easy to crack when you kind of look at um, the stats of everything. Um, the issue is that you kind of need to know what language uh, the plain text is in because different languages have different frequency analysis, right? That, that's true with basically any cipher, though. Yeah, yeah, no, that, yeah, that's very true. Um, and also we have a lot of, um, for example, in the English language, if you have a Q, it's almost certainly followed by a U. Um, we have a lot of, um, special cases and rules. Yeah. Rules. And, um, yeah, I, yeah. It's just rules of, of English language and how things are structured and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, like Q and U, T and H, like letters that are frequently found next to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so make it much that also, to... yeah, that makes it much easier to, to crack codes. Mm-hmm. Um, then moving on to, so a lot of those issues, people started figuring out that they could um, break it with frequency analysis. So kind of looking at, at um, histograms of letters. Um, and then people came up with uh, more intense ciphers, um, particularly polyalphabetic ciphers. Um, so for example, instead of A just mapping to F, A could map to F, I, and J in different circumstances. Um, so it makes it much more difficult to crack um, frequency analysis because you're substituting different characters for other characters. Um, and then 
kind of entering in the, the Vignet cipher, um, which I thought is hilarious because the um, it was often coined as the um, basically unbreakable code. And in French, it's called le chiffre indechiffre or indechiffrable, which is the unbreakable code. Um, but it's been broken, which is hilarious to me. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is like for the time a very good cipher, um, and it took a long time for it to be broken. Yeah, it uh, was from when uh, it was first created, right? So when was it first um, created? Because it was broken in eighteen sixty three. This is how long people have been making codes. Uh, and longer, way longer yeah. before then yeah mm-hmm. yeah i'm not sure when it was first created but i want to say at least 100 years before that yeah um do you know much about the vignette cipher Anto? do you want to do you want to go over it or sure um it's you know this the cipher is basically uh an expansion on the the caesar cipher right so instead of just having one alphabet that is shifted by you know, X number of characters, you have a whole table of alphabet. And so the table is, you know, 26 rows, and each row is shifted one more than the previous row. So the first row will start with B, the next row will start with C, and so on. And so you use this table to encrypt your message. Um, so you would go down, uh, you would have also an A, B, C, D, all the full alphabet down the left side, and to encrypt your message, you would go to A, uh, you pick a key letter. Um, so say, you know, you pick a key like uh, my name, Anto. So you would go down the A column to the letter you're trying to encrypt. Uh, and then the letter, you're, the encrypted letter is the one on the left. And you go through that through your whole, uh, through your whole cipher um, or through your whole plain text. And then until you're finished, um, so it really increases the amount of possible matches you can have in your ciphertext. Anto is a pretty weak key, though. It's a very weak key. Because it's only it's only four letters. It is. And that is one of the ways it was broken, was by uh, exploiting that fact of key length. Yeah, exactly. So one of the, the weaknesses of the cipher, um, and why it was not indecipherable, was looking at um, repetitions in the sequences of letters in the ciphertext. And from mm-hmm. that, they could figure out from repeating sequences of letters how far apart they were. And then that would give you an insight into how long your key was. So for example, if you had some repeated letters that were showing up pretty frequently and they're all four letters apart or eight letters apart or some multiple of that, you would know, hey, well, you know, it's probably four. And from that, then you can start looking around at key lengths of four, trying to you know figure out what it is. Um, so it kind of gave people a foothold into breaking this yeah. code. Yeah, well, once you know the length of the key, then you sp- can split the ciphertext up into um, basically five different texts of that key length, or five different texts. Like if, if your key is five, five letters long, you split into five texts, and then you can use traditional frequency analysis on it to get the letters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so where you run into issues with frequency analysis is short plain text, because you can't get a proper uh, reading of the histograms of letters and stuff just becomes really, really difficult. Um, so later on, we're going to talk about um, unsolved ciphers 
and you'll see that a lot of these are very short. Some of them are super long, but a lot of them mm -hmm. are very short. And that's why, because it's really hard to figure out, um, basically using um, statistical analysis to figure out, you know, what's actually going on because everything's so short. So yeah, let's, because of that, um, the one-time pad uh, cipher was, was put into play. And it's basically, let's have a really, really long key. Even a key that matches the length of the plain text. You just have it super long and be random. So like a random sequence of letters. The one-time pad is basically uh, the Vignar cipher, but with a sufficiently long key. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's an important, important point that I missed. Um, so to this day, people still say that a one-time pad... So a Vignier cipher with, uh, sorry, it's Visionaire, Visionaire cipher with uh, a really long random key is uncrackable. Can't be done. The, the issue with a one-time pad, so a, just a random sequence of letters, is key distribution. How the heck do you send a key that's random? So it's not, it's not a, you know, a passage from a book. It's not something like some common word um, that someone can remember. You have to send all of these random letters um, to the other party beforehand, before you even send the message, for them to actually be able to decrypt it. So then you not only have to figure out how to give them your ciphertext, but you have to generate a whole bunch of keys that are random. And then you have to figure out how to give, give them a whole pad of these keys. And usually, um, for example, in World War II, they would give these to submarine operatives, like down, down in submarines, and give them a whole pad of codes and say, on this day, rip off the top pad, you're using this one. And then the next day, rip off the top pad, you're using that one. Well, not only per day, they would have to do it per message. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so it was really easy to get out of sync and your message completely lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of issues with um, key distribution. Um, basically, how do I tell the person on the other end how they're supposed to decrypt this message? Um, and a lot of modern cryptography techniques, which we'll get into a little bit later, they're really, really cool. And they've basically done some really interesting thought experiments for how to, how to give people a key that is public that everyone can look at this key. Um, there's some really cool thought experiments, so we'll get into that later. Uh, you want to take a break, Anto? Sure. Amazon is a website that will ship you anything you need in life. Literally anything. You can even buy uranium ore and start your own nuclear reactor today. Sign up for an Amazon Prime subscription and get two-day free shipping access to Prime Video and music streaming services, and 20% off diapers delivered right to your door. You don't even need to take off your pajamas. Sign up for Prime using the link bit.ly forward slash Amazon Knickknack Nerd, which also supports this podcast. And now, back to the show. All right, we're back. So, continuing our discussion on one-time pads, um, one other flaw in the one-time pad uh, idea is that uh, it's really important that you use the pad only one time and there were multiple 
times where, you know, people get lazy, they're running out of pads, what have you, and, and they use the pad more than once. And once there is multiple ciphertexts with the same key, it becomes much easier to, to decipher the message. And then your message could potentially fall into the wrong hands. Like, say, for example, you're a submarine operator, you do this, all of a sudden your whereabouts and plans are known by the enemy, or, or you're a spy and... You know, then the enemy knows what intelligence you have or, or don't have. Um, so it, it's really important to keep that message secret. secret, um, And, you know, respecting proper use of the one-time pad is really important. And basically, in general, cryptography, respecting proper usage is important. Mm -hmm. And I th that probably leads us into uh, the next, kind of after the tipping point in cryptography, um, the Enigma machine. Yeah, very cool uh, World War II cipher machine, like a physical machine, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I think we talked about this in the, the AI. Yeah, we uh, talked about it a little bit, Just I a think. a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. um, you you want to tell us about it? Yeah, so basically it's a, it was basically a very fancy and convoluted way of making uh, a very complex veneer cipher and also uh, a substitution cipher kind of piled onto one with many layers of of uh, enciphering. They basically said, we need something really secure. Let's just throw the kitchen sink at it. Let's just do everything in one box. It was invented by this German guy. No one wanted to buy it from him. Then the Germans figured out that, hey, everyone's been reading our messages for ages. We should use this thing. And so they ended up buying like 30,000 of these uh, Enigma machines. Um, and so, uh, before the war, it was actually cracked by Poland. And then during the war, they added more layers of complexity to what they already had. Just, they threw more sinks at it. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, then it, it became even more complex. So eventually it was defeated, not because the machine wasn't good. It wasn't strong encryption, but because people or it's the Germans specifically were very poor at, uh, you know, proper use of the machine. Like they, they created a bunch of rules about how the different, uh, settings could be set up. Like you couldn't have the same dial set to the same thing two days in a row. And the more rules you make, and if the enemies learn of those rules, they can use that to cut down a number of cases they need to solve. And it makes the problem a lot easier for them. Yeah, so it was basically the usage of the of the device. Like it was a human yeah, error the, kind of thing. It was a, not even an error. It was a human oversight. Oversight, oversight. Totally. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, actually, some of the machine operators uh, got lazy. So every every day, all the operators they had this code book, and it was put out every month. And every day had a new one day key. So everyone knew on this day I used this key to set them. Use specific settings you put into the machine. Turn the dials a certain way. Yeah, that that was the key. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't like a letter. It was spin this rotary knob this many clicks and like that sort of thing. Exactly. Um, but so because uh, using the key for a whole day, there could be thousands of messages would make it you know pretty trivial to decipher them if they had that much text to go off of. So they decided they would send um, message keys with the day key. So they were six, they were only three letters long, but they decided they would send the message keys uh, twice in a row 
to avoid errors by the telegram operators. Oh, right. So like, um, uh, what's, what's that called when you, for example, uh, a checksum. Like Basically, a checksum. as a checksum, yeah. but the checksum was the actual payload. Um, so they would send that first, and so that would be the, the key. So they would encrypt that with the, the daily key, um, the message key that they were going to use for the following message. Um, so basically, the the allies needed to know you know what that daily key was, so they spent all their time decrypting that. Um, and that the doubling up really made their job easier because they were able to find a bunch of loopholes into how they were encrypting things and some they recognized some patterns and, and built um, these mechanized solving machines to figure out what the the keys were and they could solve mm -hmm. them as fast as one hour in a day so mm -hmm. and it wasn't there also something with um uh they would begin every message in the morning with a weather report or something like that like it was a very specific type of message with particular vocabulary yeah, the, the German Navy wouldn't do this, but other parts of the German military would send uh, the weather report in the morning. So they knew, and because this military is very regimented, structured, so the the word weather or wetter in German was uh, was in the same exact spot, character-wise, of the message every day at 6.05 a.m. Mm -hmm. So uh, then they could just use that to check a much smaller text on uh what because they already knew what the plain text was so they could easily more easily figure out the answer mm -hmm. it, it's kind of like if you're being uh followed or or you have surveillance on you or something like that and you're still doing kind of shady things like you're a criminal you, you gotta mm -hmm. have a random you, you can't just be doing the same things at the same times because then you have a pattern right it's easy to it's easy to find you yes you need a little bit of chaos, Santo. You need a little bit of chaos. You know, I know you're an agent of chaos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, so, I'm chaotic good, Belanto. Yeah, so I guess eventually uh, the Enigma machine was uh, solved largely in part due to the efforts of Alan Turing, who we talked about in our AI episode a lot. Uh, he created uh, the machine uh, that ended up being used to solve the Enigma machine. Yeah. And uh, that was kind of the end of the Enigma after that. Pretty much. Once once uh, a method is, is cracked, it's pretty much not used anymore. Or yeah. if it is, it's to um, basically obscure the message from people that wouldn't have the means to decrypt it. Well, the Enigma actually was classified until, like, all that stuff that they had broken it was classified until the 70s. Um, right, because they, they kept Bletchley Park... Um, yeah very quiet right they yeah there's very hush hush mm -hmm. so the the uk actually let the colonies like all the commonwealth countries use the enigma machines to keep their messages back and forth to other places with themselves safe like after um, the war after the war because oh, the uk wanted to be able to read their messages <laughs> okay that's not sweet <laughs> <laughs> So th th that's a perfect segue into digital cryptography and getting into PGP, pretty good privacy, because it's really the making um, making encryption at, at a very high level accessible to everybody. Mm -hmm.
Soul Bundle is a video game subscription service that selects a bunch of fun games each month and you choose which games you want to keep forever. With a subscription, you also get a 20% discount off of thousands of games on the Humble Store. I often find myself browsing Steam not knowing what I want to play, when that time could be better spent trying a handful of good hand-picked games. Sign up for a Humble Choice Basic or Premium subscription using the link bit.ly forward slash humble nerd. Your subscription not only gets you a handful of great video games, but also supports this podcast. Now back to the show. So now we're kind of entering into the era of uh, digital cryptography. So this is basically cryptography on computers. How do, how do computers do it? Um, and they do it a lot. And they do it a lot. I, I use uh, cryptography uh, every single day as a as a computing scientist anyone that sends a text message uses cryptography yeah um even all of um all of gmail's emails are Mm -hmm. all encrypted now um so you you use it every single day it's just a a part of the internet uh whether or not you understand it it's happening um so probably better that you understand it um so really uh, plain text is composed of a whole bunch of characters, so like A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Um, every single character is represented on a computer as bits. So usually a character is a byte, a byte is 8 bits. Uh, a single bit can be 0 or 1. This is all zeros and 1s on the computer, that's how it's encoded. Um, so now, once we have zeros and 1s encoding our plain text, now we can get into weird sort of twiddling of bits, I'll call it. So you can put it through <laughs> Anto's face. Did you like the twiddling of bits, Anto? Would you, would you say you're a bit twiddler? I, w- <laughs> I, might, I might say that my job is to bit twiddle. Oh, um, oh my. <laughs> so you can take individual bits... And like, for example, a really simple cipher would be if something is one, zero, you would just flip the bits. So every two bits that you come across a pair, you just flip them. And then the person on the other side takes those bits and flips them back. Um, so that's a super, super simple binary, a a bit twiddle, right? (laughs) Um, we have a lot of, um, well-known, uh, bit manipulation functions, bit twiddlers right there's the mm-hmm. the and twiddle the or twiddle the xor twiddle there's just a whole bunch of um uh bit functions uh, that can be used to scramble bits uh, in, a, in a predictable way um and also in a way that you can recover the original um so more symmetric ciphers right um then one of the one of the biggest issues that cryptography has always faced is key distribution. Um, so how do I how do I give a person a key so that they can open up my message, right? And and have other people not have access to that key. Right. How do you get that key out without other people also getting the key? Exactly. Right. So um, there's been a lot of cool um, thought experiments that kind of happened. I think it was like in the seventies. About key distribution in particular, um, and a lot of the examples in cryptography are 
Alice and Bob. So Alice is sending a message to Bob, and Bob wants to open up the message and that kind of stuff. I don't know why that's the case. I'm gonna use Greg and Anto. I think it's a it's a computer science thing. I think you see that in a lot of uh, computer science, especially the beginner level courses. Alice and Bob make their appearance. Yeah, yeah. Alice and Bob's big debut. Um, so let's say that let's say that I want to send uh, a lockbox to Anto, and. Uh, yeah, what, what are we going to put in the book? What do you want, Anto? Um, I want a sandwich. <laughs> okay. Anto wants a sandwich. And no one else is allowed to eat that sandwich. Just, I made this specially for Anto. It's his favorite sandwich. It's I want a it. beef dip. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beef dip. <laughs> it's a beef dip with a no, nice You can't machine. go wrong with a beef dip. Yeah. It's not possible. Yep. Yeah. Um, I'm even going to put in a little bit of you in there for the Anto. Oh, the Oju. Yep. Unfortunately, after this lockbox, this physical box with a sandwich in it is shipped to you, it's going to be disgusting. There's going to be shoe not gonna all over. You're not going to wrap it up? Uh, <laughs> 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 no, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I have the box, I throw in a sandwich and a little bit of jus, and it's oh, being no. shipped off to you. So I want to lock this box so I can give it to Anto. So I, I put my lock on it. Um, if I were to just ship it to Anto, he would need the key to my padlock to open it up. So, uh, let's say I ship it to him and, uh, it's got my padlock on it and he doesn't have the key. Well, it sucks for Anto because now he has to smell this beautiful beef dip sandwich and he can't open up the box, right? It's just torturous. And I have no cutters. And no cutters. Um, so, you know, he can't receive the message. He can't receive the beef dip, right? It's pretty sad. Um, said. so without proper key distribution, if I can't figure if we didn't meet beforehand and he didn't have the, the key, um, he's not getting any beef dip, right? So this is the coolest thought experiment. Just in, I'm going to argue it's the coolest thought experiment in history. It, it is that cool. It, there might be some ones in physics that are cooler, uh, with like relative theory and stuff like that, but this one's actually, I think, really, I think there are. <laughs> the, the simplicity of this is right when you hear it, you're like, oh my God, of course. It's it's so elegant. Um, but it took until 1970s to actually figure this out. And it's so cool. So why wouldn't you... I'll, I'll let you drop the bomb and then I'll ask my question. Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right. So now I have my lockbox of beef dip. I throw my lock on it, my padlock, and I send it to Anto. Now, Anto can put on also his padlock onto it, right? So now there's two padlocks on this box. He sends it back to me. I have a box with my padlock on it and Anto's padlock on it. I take my key from my padlock. I remove my padlock. I ship it back to Anto. Now Anto just has a lock box with his padlock on it. And a moldy sandwich. <laughs> yeah, so we've shipped it back and forth a couple times, right? Um, so now he has a lockbox with just Anto's padlock on it. He takes his own key and unlocks it and gets his moldy beef dip sandwich. Just covered in jus. It's, it's, you know, it's been shipped. It's been, you know, it's pretty old at this point. But we're in the digital world where shipping information is fast and cheap, right? 
So now think of a physical lockbox being just a piece of information on the internet, just some text, right? Um, I apply my key to it. Anto, I send it to Anto. Anto applies his key to it, sends it back to me. I decrypt my key, send it back to Anto. Anto decrypts his key. He gets uh, the message. Um, so never once in this paradigm did we exchange keys. We had we exchanged locks, but we didn't exchange keys at all, and that's just mind. It's so elegant. I just love it. It's fantastic. Okay, so in the world of, in the world of encryption, so in text, so if you're enciphering text, how how does that work? How do you, how do I put my key on something you've already locked if I can't read it to put my key on it? So I would, we should get into public and private keys first and then come back to that. Cause, uh, sure. Because uh, sort of like the nomenclature of that, uh, we'll, we'll kind of need that. Um, so with this new kind of paradigm of digital encryption, um, everybody has a public and a private key. Um, so we have two keys. Um, so basically two ways of, of encrypting and, and decrypting. Um, so public is used for decryption, or sorry, public is used for encryption. It's accessible to everybody. Everybody can read your public key. Everybody should know what it is so that they can send you messages, right? The, yes. the private key is accessible just to you. So you should always keep and never like publish that on a server or like anywhere. It is your key. And it's used for decrypting messages sent to you. That's it. So you've just answered my question. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, public and private keys are, are super important. So what would happen, Greg, just to, to answer the question, right? You would send me a message that's encrypted. I would send you back your message plus my key alongside it without doing anything to your message. Then you would decrypt your message and send it back encrypted with my key. With your public key, yes. With my public key, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, so, um, this is a really, really cool idea because we're not exchanging keys. Um, our private keys stay private to us. Um, the only thing that's exchanged is the information that's being encrypted with the public key, which everyone knows about. Um, so, there's no key distribution issue. Uh, it's, it's actually amazing. Um, yeah. So, if you've heard of RSA before... Um, I think it's an acronym of three guys that ended up inventing the it's, RSA it's protocol. really secure algorithm, I think. Is, is it what really it stands secure for? algorithm? I thought it might I think been, so. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like something that computing scientists would come up with. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I mean, PGP is pretty good privacy. So, <laughs> so RSA would make sense. Um, so the way it works is basically really, really large prime factors of numbers. To the point where it's insanely difficult to brute force it. Um, so if they're really low numbers, you might be able to guess what the prime factors are. So basically prime numbers. Um, but if they're really, really large, you need a heck of a lot of computing power to figure out what those two numbers are. Um, and that's basically how it operates um, on a really, really high level not going deep into mathematics at all, but even if you go into the mathematics, it's really not that complicated. Like it's just it's, a super elegant not. algorithm. It's really cool. Um, so with um, with RSA, um, 
there was a, a movement that called Pretty Good Privacy, PGP. And basically the movement was, this is such an important um, milestone for humans to be able to encrypt messages and have a person on the other end be able to decrypt or decipher that message um, without any sort of interjection or anything like that, that it needs to be available for everyone. Um, so it was really an encryption for all. Yeah, and that, that's how you, one of the ways you can avoid an Orwellian future. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it kind of comes down to human rights. Like, it, it should be one of the rights of a human to be able to speak to someone without eavesdropping. Like, that's... Not according to the USA. Yeah, well, well, <laughs> I, I would say not just the US, but, but kind of many regimes, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but so it, it's... Um, like, I, I would argue that that's a human right to be able to do that. I would enjoy that, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so really the, the initiative behind PGP, which is pretty good privacy, was make it accessible and easy to use. So you don't need to be, you know, have a master's in computing science to be able to encrypt a message. Um, uh, we want to make it available to be able to encrypt and decrypt messages for common folk, right? And then there was a lot of issues back in the day with RSA encryption being really slow um, so PGP also had some really cool um, ideas to do faster encryption. Like um, instead of running RSA on the whole message, they would run RSA on the key uh, to send certain things and then do a, a simpler encryption algorithm for the whole message um, just to make stuff faster. Now it doesn't matter at all. Um, computers have come a long way since yeah, then. They're fast enough now that it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Your phone is many times faster than the computer that flew the space shuttle, so... Oh, yeah. Um, and then getting into digital signing. Um, so how do we... If someone sends you a message, um, so they look up your public key, they send you the public key... Oh, sorry. They encrypt the message with your public key, send it to you. How do you know that that message was sent from the person that you thought it was? So it could just be any kind of message, right? Um, so what if you kind of think backwards and you take your private key that only you know and you send a piece of information saying, hey, this is Greg, and you encrypt that message with your private key and then you have a piece of ciphertext and then other people know your public key so they decrypt it with your public key and therefore it proves it was from you because only you know your private key. Um, so it's kind of going the backwards way. Um, so digital signing is also really cool. And that's how, like when you sign something in um, um, uh, Adobe products or anything like that, like you're filling out a PDF form and you have a digital signature, it's doing that. So you have your private key, you're encrypting a message, and then other people decrypt it with your public key. And that's how they know that it's for you, right? Or that's how your computer knows that whatever you're installing is actually from Microsoft. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. For example. Yeah. Um, so super, super important concept um, for computing. Um, and and now it is ubiquitous. Everyone uses it, whether they know it or not. Um, and that's pretty cool. Um, Very cool. So in general, I would say that um, 
uh, breaking ciphertext has always been a thing. Um, since codes were were being made, people have wanted to break them. Um, so it's kind of like an arms and armor race. Um, so you know, people back in the day had arrows, and that forced um, you know, thicker plate armor stuff like that, so that the yep. arrows can penetrate into their armor. And then they needed better arrows. And then they needed better arrows. They made armor-piercing arrows. And then guns came in. And then, you know, why even have tank armor anymore? And then, yeah, then tanks came. Um, so there's always this, um, as, as a new idea is being proposed, people are there to try and break it, right? Yep, there's always the one-upping. So that, that's kind of always been the case with uh, cryptography. Uh, people have proposed new ways to... Uh, encrypt messages and because people want to snoop in on certain things and figure out what people are talking about they've tried to figure out ways to break it um so look at um the letter frequency analysis that completely broke um monoalphabetic ciphers and they needed to go to um vignette cipher and then someone figured out uh, a weakness in the vignette cipher or the visionaire cipher on a dare he figured it out on a dare? What do you mean on a dare? Um, he, the guy that figured it out, Charles Babbage. Yeah. Um, he. What happened? So Charles Babbage, so this other guy, proclaimed that he's created a new uh, encryption method, and it was essentially the Vignard cipher. So Charles Babbage was like, "No, that's been around, published in many books for." many many years and the guy was like well prove it by breaking it so he did that's badass <laughs> what a badass this was back in like 1865 or something right yeah just an old school badass way way back yeah would you say that he was a paper twiddler oh he twiddled many <laughs> many papers <laughs> um yeah, we, we should also talk about, like, since we're in the, the digital world now, talking about um, passwords. So when you create an account on some site, like, for example, now Facebook or whatever, um, you create a username, you create a password. Um, what happens if the company takes your password and stores it in plain text in their database? And then what happens? You get pwned. You get pwned. What happens if someone gets access to that server and whatever database it is, and then just has a plain text readout of everyone's passwords? It, it would be catastrophic. Because think about how many people don't change their password across services. Um, oh yeah, a lot of people. Um, so... They, for example, get access to your Facebook, and then from there, they try your username in every single other thing and get access to a whole bunch of other things. Once they get access to your email, they reset passwords for everything, and then you're hooped. Um, so, um, there is actually a website called haveibeenpwned.com yeah, where you that. can type in your email address, and it will show whether your password has been uh, leaked because of a data breach of some type where someone was doing just that. I, I was clear on that. Were you? Yes. On, so, on some older ones, not so much. Yeah, I, I had a I had an old, I think, Hotmail account or something. 
Yeah, I think it was an old Hotmail account. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that one was compromised. <laughs> the, old, the old junk mail account. Exactly. Um, I was almost going to say it on air, and then I was like, that's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you want to talk about how uh, companies in uh, basically turn your password into safer text? Yeah, sure. So actually, they don't. They do not encrypt your password anymore, right? Encry- encryption implies that it can be decrypted. Um, instead, what they do is uh, hash your password. So it's a it's a non-reversible process. Um, so they run, you know, your your plain text through a function, usually many more than one times, and then they store the result of that. Um, and then when you put your password in. They do the same thing to the password you enter on the website and compare it to the result. So they don't actually have your password. They're just comparing the result of running that function on the text you give them. So basically, when you're making a password, uh, you know, probably stray away from, from common terms. Uh, you know, like common Longer words. Longer is better. Longer is better. Entropy is good. Yep. Longer and... Very long and memorable is better than short and ridiculous. Yeah. Also, on the ridiculous side, my mom is amazing for this because she makes the most uncrackable passwords, but they're so uncrackable that she can't even communicate them to the rest of the family. Like, you go over, (laughs) like, Mom, what's the (laughs) Wi-Fi password? (laughs) She brings out this one-time bad (laughs) Oh my god. <laughs> it's crazy. There's so many special characters. Is, is your um, mom a Russian spy? Well, it's unclear whether my dad is a Russian spy. We, we've always thought that, you know, his, his job was a cover. Because, you know, he traveled so much to the Middle <laughs> he East. Has, he has been to Russia, Russia quite a bit. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah. So maybe it's my dad doing that. She's maybe. Like, yeah. Well, something to think about, anyways. Um, so. <laughs> Like, yeah, you can make your passwords crazy and tons of special characters and uppercase, lowercase, all that kind of stuff. And it's good. It's good to randomize. But at the same time, you have to remember your password, you know. Um, There are kind of software services and stuff like um, 1Pass. And there's there's probably tons of other ones. There's 1Password and LastPass are the two, I think, most popular ones. Yeah. Yeah. and they're they're very good for letting you have um, lots of varied passwords for everywhere, um, but they also have the downside of all your passwords are in one p- place, and if that's compromised, they have the keys to everything. Yes, um, but on the upside, you only need one password to unlock all your passwords, and then you can have crazy passwords. Yeah, cryptography, I guess, could like largely be described in uh, security versus convenience. Yeah, um, that's basically what you're fighting against over time. So you kind of want the right balance. You don't always need to go with the the best encryption. It depends what you're trying to secure. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a really solid point. Um, and it also depends on on how often you're accessing it. Like if it's something that you need uh, very frequently, like for example, on your desk, if you have a drawer that you go in all the time to go look up a file, you probably don't want to you know, have to unlock it every single time you want to go grab that file because it's super inconvenient. Um, but it also depends on what you're trying to, you know, obscure from other people, right? Um, also very important. 
Um, Anto, do you, you, we should make this a two-parter because we haven't even gotten to um, all the unsolved cases and, of, of unbroken ciphers and stuff like that. Um, right, let's end it there then. Uh, you can find additional info and links to what we talked about on our website, nicknacknerd.com. Uh, if you want to write in, you can reach us at hello at nicknacknerd.com. Uh, you can reach us on social media, but, you know, we don't check those because we're not really social media people. Um, download and subscribe to our podcast. We should check those. Yeah, we should probably check those. Um, leave us a review. That always helps out. Um, you can visit us on Patreon. at patreon.com forward slash nicknacknerd. And donate as little as one buck a month to, uh, you know, help offset the cost of Anto's new fancy microphone, right? Um, I'm Greg, and I'm here with Anto. And thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Anto's new fancy microphone, right? Um, I'm Greg, and I'm here with Anto. And thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.